you know, singing Christmas carols, you almost have to sing all Christmas carols or none at all because they don't really go with anything else, do they? Till the storm passes by and away in a manger. It don't really go together, does it? I sat in the um, waiting room um, last night or this morning early, and I went over there to Matthew 2, and I read again uh, Herod passing that decree um, for all of those baby boys to be murdered in Bethlehem. And I, and I thought about that, of course, with, with what we were sitting there for. And I thought about those mothers having babies snatched from their arms and, and the sorrow and the sadness and the suffering that, that surrounded the birth of Christ. Just sorrowful. And then I thought about what it must have felt in the heart of the father for his son, his son, to be born knowing the purpose for his birth was to go to a cross and to die. And somehow we, we think about the Godhead, and that's proper, but father, son, and for him to watch his son suffer and the sorrow of his heart as he dies. Because I think it is in the heart of a parent when your child suffers to want to fix it. Want to fix it. Just tell me how to fix it. There are some things you can't fix. And I thought about that sorrow and that suffering of those mothers. And I thought about the sorrow in the heart of God watching his son die. For me. For me. And um, I don't think you and I will ever fully understand that. The cost, the sacrifice for you and I. I wasn't worth it. And you weren't either. But he must have thought that we were. An amazing thought. Daniel chapter 2 tonight. Daniel chapter 2. I had a lot of things on my mind tonight. And I, but I think that we'll just stay with the prophecy series. Daniel chapter 2. If you remember a couple of weeks ago in our study of the book of Revelation. We stepped out of the book of Revelation. And we looked at a little phrase in Luke 21, 24. Where the Lord Jesus said... They shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive of all nations. And then he made this statement, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. We looked at that statement a couple of weeks ago. Jesus was giving his disciples some signs of the end times. And in that, he prophesied that Jerusalem would remain under the dominion of of Gentiles until he returned. And we saw that the times of the Gentiles began with Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. when he came in and destroyed Jerusalem. And I realized that a couple of weeks ago when we looked at those verses that it was a hard study. It was a, it was a rather tedious study, but, but it prepares us for the next couple of lessons. And I make no apology that on Wednesday night, this is not camp meeting, this is Bible study. And there are two major prophecies in the book of Daniel that 
that describes the course of the time of the Gentiles. And I want to bring those two chapters into our study in the chronology of prophecy because this is where they belong. Ben Hensley really helped me last night and today, and we've got some things that I think will help keep you engaged, and so I, I'm looking forward to that. But in that statement that the Lord Jesus made, he pointed to Jerusalem as a signpost, a marker of end-time events. Not the United States, not any other city, but Jerusalem. Pay attention to what happens in Jerusalem. The most valuable piece of real estate in all of the world is the city of Jerusalem. Maybe not price-wise, but de determining what happens there. And what happens to and in Jerusalem reverberates throughout all of the nations. There is no city that is more loved, no city more hated than the city of Jerusalem. There is no city that has been ransacked and attacked more times than Jerusalem. And there is no city that has been miraculously preserved more than the city of Jerusalem. You may remember that when David became the king of Israel, that his capital was in Hebron. He was, Hebron was the capital for about seven years. But Hebron was built on a plain and it was very hard to defend. And so seven years in, when the kingdom united under David, he moved the capital to Jerusalem. And from that time on, Jerusalem became the economic center, the political center, the religious center, the social center of Jewish life. And I thought about how that our capital is Washington, D.C., but our lives do not revolve around Washington, D.C. We don't make pilgrimage to Washington. We have no particular fondness for Washington. In fact, some of us would have a great disdain for Washington. But that's not how it was with the Jew and Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was not only special to the Jew, but Jerusalem was special to God. The Messiah was born just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. He was crucified right outside the city limits of Jerusalem. He was raised again in the sepulcher that was in Jerusalem. It was just outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem that he ascended back to heaven. And when he comes back, he comes back to Jerusalem to establish his throne in Jerusalem. Pay attention tonight to what is happening in Jerusalem. But when we come to the book of Daniel, Jerusalem lies in ruins and in ashes. The city and the nation had forsaken God, and God has destroyed their city in chastisement. They have loved the city without loving the God whose city it belonged to, and so God punishes them. The captives who were in Babylon often mourned the loss of Jerusalem. In fact, I'll read for you Psalm 137, a couple of verses. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. It's another name for Jerusalem. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. They that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Listen, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem, 
above my chief joy. Jerusalem was a sacred place to the Jew. But the weapon in the hand of God against Jerusalem is this Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. You can read about the final siege of Jerusalem in Jeremiah 52, where Jeremiah lays out how that Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroys the temple, he destroys all of the walls, he destroys the palaces. He destroyed the house of God because he wanted to break the religion. He destroyed the houses of the princes because he wanted to break the political order. The year was 586 B.C., the year that Jerusalem fell to Gentile power. That begins the period of time that Jesus refers to as the time of the Gentiles. And Jesus was saying in Luke 21 that Jerusalem would remain desolate. It would remain under Gentile power until he came back and they recognized him as their Messiah. There have been times that the Jews occupied Jerusalem even as they do now. But they've always had opposition from the surrounding nations. They've never had complete autonomy. There is no king, there is no security, there is no peace in Jerusalem. In fact, even today, the Jews do not have complete ownership of that city. Sitting on the Temple Mount in East Jerusalem, there is the Al-Aqsa Mosque that sits on the, uh, the Temple Mount, the, 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 the um, uh, that, that mosque with that golden dome gleaming. And every, year, every day, a Jew has to look to that and be reminded that he does not have total ownership of Jerusalem. Now, in the book of Revelation, it deals with the future of Jerusalem, but it doesn't say anything about the history of Jerusalem. When we get to Revelation 13, Revelation 17, we will find out how the times of the Gentiles end, but it doesn't tell you anything about the course of the times of the Gentiles. But in the book of Daniel, there are two chapters that spells out in amazing prophecy these times of the Gentiles. You're in Daniel chapter 2, and I want to spend a little bit of time tonight, and I want to talk to you about empires rise and empires fall. And I want you to pick the story up with me in verse 27. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. For there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and thou, thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image, his head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together 
came like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. If you're paying attention to, to the world around you, you know that society is distant, disintegrating before our very eyes. We tend to view the entire world through the lens of America. So let's talk about America for, for just a minute. The United States is 250 years old, give or take a year or two, and we have been the envy of the world. We have been the bastion of freedom and liberty, the land of opportunity. We have had prosperity and wealth. But I believe that you are watching the disintegration and the destruction of America. A nation cannot possibly survive long in the moral corruption that we find ourselves in. The Bible tells us that the world does not get better and better, but the world actually gets worse. Our government is corrupt, our morals are bankrupt, and our culture is, is debauched. And it almost sounds unpatriotic to say this, but I believe that the time will come that the United States will cease to be a superpower. I believe that we are living in the beginning of the end of the United States of America as a superpower. There was a, um, there was a professor in Edinburgh in the 1700s. His name was Alexander Tyler. Alexander Tyler wrote a lot against democracies. He was against the democratic form of government, so we would disagree with a lot what he said. There's a quote that he wrote, and it's gone around, and it's become a very famous quote, and, and here's what he says about democracy. He says, a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves money from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy always followed by dictatorship. That describes what we're living in. We're living on the edge of socialism, fascism, totalitarianism. And that's the land that we live in. But when you study history, you find out that every kingdom, every empire, every nation that has risen up to power has eventually crumbled and fallen. That is the story of Daniel chapter 2. It is an outline of kingdoms rising and kingdoms falling. And in this prophecy that we are going to read, there is a preview of the actual kingdoms that are going to rise and that are going to fall and how the final kingdom is smitten to smithereens. It is not telling you about nations that have come. It is telling you about nations that will come after. At this time, Babylon is the world power. Nebuchadnezzar sits atop that vast empire. Daniel was a young Jewish boy that has been brought to Babylon in the first captivity. And because of his abilities and his intelligence and his talents, he has been brought into the palace to work as an emissary in Jewish affairs. And though Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful monarch on earth, he is unsettled about the future. You see, Nebuchadnezzar has seen nations rise and nations fall, and he's unsure about the future of his own kingdom. 
He begins to have dreams, and one night God put a dream in his mind. He didn't know it, but the, the dream was actually an outline of prophetic events. Now, I don't believe that God speaks to us today in visions of dreams, but in the Old Testament times, God did speak to men through visions. Well, this dream troubles Nebuchadnezzar, and he calls all of his wise men in to tell him the dream. Nebuchadnezzar would have believed that God spoke to him through dreams, and so it would have been no surprise to him that some supreme being is talking to him. But what troubles him the most is that he couldn't remember the details of the dream, much less know what it meant. And so he tells his wise men, that I want you to tell me what I dreamed, and I want you to tell me an interpretation of that dream. Well, the wise men, they gather together, they counsel, they are unable to do that. And he orders them all to be executed. Somebody brings Daniel in. Daniel goes to the king, he asks for some time and says that my God can reveal secrets. And so Daniel and his three friends, they pray. God gives the dream and the interpretation to Daniel. Daniel goes back into Nebuchadnezzar and not only tells him what he's dreamed, but he tells him what the dream means. That's Daniel chapter 2. Now in the verses that I've read to you tonight, and I'll not read them again for sake of time, but the dream is told, and here is the dream. It is an image of a statue in a human form. Twice it is called a great image, so it is a massive statue. And then it is called a terrible statue, or it's terrible image, meaning it's terrifying. It would strike fear in your heart to see it. It's imposing and it's intimidating. It even strikes fear in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. There's a couple little features about this that I want you to know, and then we will begin in the image. And the first thing is that you've noticed is that it is made out of different materials or different metals, from gold to silver to brass to iron to iron and clay mix. That, that is the composition. And the materials are in a deteriorating value. Gold is more valuable than silver. Silver is more valuable than brass. Brass is more valuable than iron. Iron is more valuable than iron and clay mix. And not only is it made of deteriorating value, but the materials are in decreasing weight. Gold is heavier than silver. Silver is heavier than brass. Brass is heavier than iron. Iron is heavier than iron and clay. So it is heavier at the top than it is at the bottom. So it is top heavy is what it is. So you have this imposing image of various compositions. And then Daniel sees a great stone that comes out of nowhere. And it strikes the feet of this image, crushes it to smithereens. You'll hear that word a few times tonight. And pulverizes it to dust. And it is blown away like the chaff of the wind. And to finish the vision, that stone becomes a great mountain and it fills the earth. Now that's the vision. That's not new to you. You've read Daniel chapter 2. That's the vision. Now, what does it mean? And how does it tie into the times of the Gentiles? Well, the four parts of the image correspond to four world kingdoms. 
The stone that destroys the image represents Jesus Christ who establishes the final kingdom at the millennium. So look with me at verse number 36. Verse 36. This is the dream. We will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the hearts of the field, the beasts of the field, and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. So the first part of the image is a head of gold. And Daniel says that Nebuchadnezzar, you, your kingdom, Babylon, is the head of gold. This is Babylon. God has given you this kingdom. He has raised you up for this time. Nebuchadnezzar was an idolater who believed in pagan gods. And so he had no problem believing that a deity had given him this power. And so this empire that he builds, it is a vast empire. He's a supreme monarch. In fact, in this passage, he is called a king of kings. I find that a very interesting statement. He has tremendous authority, tremendous power. And there is nobody on earth that has as much power as Nebuchadnezzar. So, Babylon, you are the kingdom of gold. That, that is Babylon, and I think that we have that there. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. And, and, and it's interesting to me that he is represented by God gold. Why is that? Is that just an arbitrary thing or does that have any meaning? History tells us that Babylon was the city of gold, that, that they amassed great gold when Nebuchadnezzar built the city, that he built so much in it in gold. In fact, the chief god of Babylon was Marduk. Marduk was the god of gold. One historian came to Babylon about 90 years after Nebuchadnezzar and he said he'd never seen so much gold in one place. That's why I found it interesting to read in Isaiah 14 and verse 4, that thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how hath the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased. The head of gold is Babylon. Babylon is one of the oldest cities in the world, founded about 4,000 years ago. You remember the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, this is the beginning of Babylon. The phase of Babylon that we're in is called the New Babylon Empire. And Nebuchadnezzar's father, he defeated the Assyrians and then he begins the Babylonian dynasty. And I won't give you much history here. But when Nebuchadnezzar took the reins of the empire, he became a mighty builder and the city of Babylon became his prized possession. He built massive walls that completely surrounded the city. The, seven, the, the, the hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In fact, some of you may remember that Saddam Hussein believed that he was the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. He vowed to rebuild the ancient city of Babylon, which the ruins is about 40 miles away from Baghdad, Iraq. However, empires rise and empires fall. And Nebuchadnezzar would be the king for 43 years before he died. In the immediate years after his death, there are three men that came and tried to take the reins and none of them lasted more than four years. 
And then in 556 B.C., a man became a king and his son Belshazzar became co-regent with him. You're familiar with the name Belshazzar because in Daniel 5, he's the king that's having the drunken party when he sees the handwriting on the wall. Belshazzar would be the king for 17 years. But one night while having that drunken party for his princes, the Medes and the Persians literally come into the city under the wall on the dry riverbed. And that night, Belshazzar is killed. And the end of the Babylonian Empire it comes to an end. That's the head of gold. Look, if you would, in verse number 39. Here is the second kingdom. And after thee shall rise another kingdom inferior to thee. Now, when I go back to verse 32, I read that the image of his head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver. So now, the second part of the image are the breast and the arms of silver. And I find that it is the second kingdom. Now it doesn't tell us what that kingdom is, but if I go to history, I can very easily see that the kingdom after Babylon is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And it starts out as a united kingdom, but there is going to be a division of some sorts. The Persian Empire started really as a group of nomadic tribes. They raised their flocks on the Iranian peninsula. But then one of their leaders, a man named Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the Great, the Bible names him about 150 years before he even comes along. He starts warring against neighboring smaller kingdoms and then he would join them all under his rule. And he really became the world's first superpower ruling from Egypt all the way to India. At the height of its power, Persia covered over 2 million square miles, over 50 million people that were under their domain. Nearly half of the world's population belonged to the Persian Empire. And it's interesting to me that Daniel says nothing about this kingdom, only that it is a kingdom inferior to thee, nothing else. To be honest with you, I'm not sure why he says it's inferior in what way it's inferior because Persian Empire was actually larger than the Babylonian Empire. But it could be, it could be that Daniel didn't say much about this because this is the kingdom that is going to replace Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has paranoia. Maybe it's not a good thing to give him much detail about the kingdom that's going to replace you. And there's no coincidence that this kingdom is represented by silver because the Persian Empire was known for silver money. They developed a system of taxation and all of their taxes were paid in silver. They literally filled their coffers with tons of silver. But empires rise and empires fall. You've heard the saying that it's too big to fall. That was actually not true or, or it's too, too big to fall. That was exactly what happened to Persia. You see, Persia expanded, and, and the more land that they conquered, the more land they had to defend. And the more land they had to defend, the more armies they had to send, and the more taxes they had to raise, and it literally became too big to handle. And that became the downfall of the Persian Empire. And so in 330 B.C., the Persian Empire falls to Alexander the Great. 
We come to the third kingdom, again in verse 39. After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass. I go back to verse 32, and I read, The image his head is of fine gold, his breast and his arms are silver, and his belly and his thighs are brass. So now I find that the next world empire is going to be represented by brass. It's going to have a belly and thighs of brass symbolizing it starts out unified, but there is going to come some kind of division in the empire. Now let me just stop right here and say that one of the most heavily criticized books in all the Bible is the book of Daniel. You ever notice critics don't ever say much about Psalms or Proverbs? They despise Genesis, they despise Revelation, and they despise the book of Daniel. And the reason why is if the Bible is able to predict the future, then what greater evidence could there be for inspiration? And Daniel gives them fits. And particularly this part of the prophecy. Here's the reason why. Daniel stood in Nebuchadnezzar's court and said, You are the head of gold, and another will overtake you. Well, that would be easy enough to predict. Looking at a city that's built of gold, it's easy to say, well, that obviously is you. And I myself could even say, you're not going to last forever. Eventually somebody is going to topple you. But the way that the critics get around Daniel's prophecy is to say, all right. So Daniel prophesies that Babylon is the kingdom of Gold, no big deal, he's sitting there. He maybe can see what's happening in the world and see that the Medes and Persians are rising up because Daniel is still alive in Daniel 5 when the Medes and Persians take over. And so that's easy enough to predict. And here's what they say, that Daniel was actually written many years later when he was really, really old looking back. Looking back, he could say, yeah, Babylon, gold, and yeah, you fell, and now the Medes and Persians. And so looking back, he could see that. But when you get to the third kingdom, it's not coming for a couple of hundred years after Daniel dies. There is no way that he sees that outside the inspiration of God. And so when they get to this third kingdom, they, they hit a snag because Greece was not a rising power in his day. So Daniel is going to predict kingdoms that's going to come hundreds of years after him. This third empire is Greece. Greece. The Grecian Empire had actually been in existence for hundreds of years, but they'd never been a dominant force on the world stage. Much of the country of Greece was ruled by city-states. A city-state is a city that essentially is big enough to have its own king, its own laws, its own currency. If you remember from history, his cities like Athens, Sparta, Carthage, they were city-states. They were very independent of each other, but evidently they were also jealous of each other because there were always wars between the city-states, Athens versus Sparta, Sparta versus Carthage, and what have you. And they were never united. So a man named Philip of Macedon, the king of Macedonia, came along he began to conquer those city-states, and Philip 
was able to unite them all into one empire. Feeling good about his success, he set his eyes upon Persia. I'm going to conquer Persia. But Philip died before he was able to do that. And he left his small empire to his only son, Alexander. And Alexander the Great is held in history as the greatest military conqueror of the world. He was only 20 when he succeeded his father. He immediately solidified the Grecian kingdom and decided that he would do what his father was not able to do. He decided that he would conquer the Persian world. And over the course of the next 12 years, he would do exactly that. He would expand his empire greater than even the Persian empire. In so doing, he would found 20 cities named after himself, the greatest one being Alexandria, Egypt. And after he conquered all of Persia, they say that Alexander wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. But he decided to push on to India. He would conquer India. But when he started toward India, his armies had been fighting for years and they were exhausted. They were done. And Alexander had to turn around and head home. And on his way home, he got ill, he got sick. Some say it was poison, some say it was malaria. It's one of the great mysteries of history. And Alexander the Great died before he got back home. He was 32 years old. Empires rise and empires fall. Interesting, by the way, that this empire is represented by brass. Brass. Greece was the first nation to use brass as weapons of war. When Alexander died, by the way, I'll give this to you, and then I'll, I'll, I'll not finish it because I see your eyes glazing over. <laughs> when Alexander died, he had no heir. His son was not yet born. And so the Greek Empire was broken up into four parts, four generals. But in time, only two of those generals had any real power, one in Egypt and one in Syria. The mighty trunk divided into two thighs, two legs, it has been divided. And Nebuchadnezzar's image sees that. It sees one strong unified kingdom in the belly of brass, but broken down into two parts seen by the two thighs. Babylon, kingdom of gold. The Medes and Persians, the kingdom of silver. Greece, the kingdom of of brass. I'm going to stop right there tonight because for me to get into the next kingdom and the ten toes of the kingdom and I promise you tonight that the most fascinating part of this entire prophecy are the ten toes. The ten toes. I wish tonight that I had time to tell you what the big toe of Nebuchadnezzar's image means. But you definitely want to come back for part two, the sequel. The ten toes. I hope that I am making it clear that this is the course of these times. That before we get to the rapture, for the picture to be complete, I want you to see prophecies that have been being fulfilled. And this means something to me tonight. To me. And I hope that tonight that you could go away with this historical dry 
information, but may it help us to set our hopes on heaven. I, I want to see America preserve our liberties and the opportunities that we have. I would tell you that there is no United States of America in prophecy. Prophecy students for years have tried to find the United States in prophecy. And they've never yet, yet been able to come up with a verse that conclusively says, this is the United States of America. So what does that mean? I, I don't know. But I don't see how we survive as a superpower much longer. We're already losing our influence around the world. We see that every day. Say, does it trouble you? Not at all. Because my hope is not in America. My hope is in God. And it must be. If your hope is not in God, I don't know how you survive. I don't know how. Last week I was in Houston at MD Anderson and Jacob Combs. I was there for a few days with mom and massive hospital and thousands of people there, patients. And as I walked through the halls and back and forth and taking mom here and there, it struck me that everybody here either has cancer or is here with somebody with cancer. Everybody. It becomes very depressing. And I thought, how do you go through this without God? How do you do this? I thought early this morning sitting in that waiting room. How does a lost person do this? Who do you turn to? What do, what do you do? Who do you talk to? How do you do this without God? And in every trial that you come through, in every valley that you walk through, how do you do that without God? You watch our country crumble. The world that your children will live in will be much different than the world that you have lived. How are you going to do that without God? Without God. Let's stand together tonight, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you tonight for the time of prayer, the time of singing that challenges our heart. Thank you for the Word of God. And I, I thank you, Lord, for a congregation that would allow just to go through these verses and Lord, try to have an understanding of what the Scripture says and understanding of our times. And I thank you tonight that our hope is in you. Oh, what a blessed assurance that that is. Oh, to think what a friend we have in Jesus. I, I, I don't know what the future holds for our country, but I know that empires rise and empires fall. And the final kingdom is not the United States. It's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we long for that kingdom. Encourage our hearts tonight through the Word of God, I pray in Jesus' name, and amen. Anna, can you find, can you find what a friend we have in Jesus? Can we find that? Let's, let's do a verse of that as our dismissal hymn. While she's finding that, let me mention this quickly.